Hi. Hi, Tegan. I'm Joram. My pronouns are he, him. What are your pronouns, Tegan? Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Yeah, um, and that was an example of how you ask somebody about their pronouns. Um, because today is International Pronoun Day. Um, oh, really? Yeah, uh, I, I found that over Twitter, over Science and STEM. Uh, no, not Science and STEM, that doesn't make sense. Queer and STEM? I'm sorry. Um, but I found this video on YouTube um, that's called How to Ask for Pronouns. And it's just, it's less than two minutes long. And I just found that so, so super helpful, um, how to establish the routine of just asking somebody for their pronouns by first stating your own pronouns. So you break the ice and you give something before you demand something. Um, and then it also talks about in the video briefly about how to address um, sort of um, people who are not familiar with the concept, um, who might then ask questions back, like, why are you asking me this? Or um, uh, what was the other question? Like people, uh, people, or people who don't understand what you mean when they're like, yeah, what does it even mean, my pronouns? And then how you can explain that very briefly. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, so just a quick reminder to everyone, um, use, ask for pronouns, normalize that. It really helps. I think you can also put them easily in written formats if you're not so used to using them verbally yet. So like in um, email signatures and, you know, on on social media yeah. bios and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, this is Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where we talk about plant molecular biology and things that are happening generally in the world of science and plant science. Yeah. Um, yeah, I sort of, I, I blew through one of my facts already right at the beginning, but it didn't make sense to do that later. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think that's, that's the right place. Yeah. How, how have you been? Um, very weird. I have moved in with a friend of mine for a couple of weeks, um, for three weeks, which has been just so lovely. Um, yeah, I've been in, in basic lockdown for the last six months um, in my home in London where I don't really know people. So now I've moved in with a friend just to get some social interaction. And it's, it's wow, you don't, you don't really realize how much you need these things. I mean, you realize because you miss them, but then when you get them again, you realize a second time how much, um, yeah, you miss certain yep. interactions. And it's, it's been really nice to kind of be part of a family and just, you know, watch my friends and yeah, be part of day-to-day -day things. And yeah, it's really nice. It's really, really nice. Yeah. It fills me with the warm glows, which is nice because um, winter is coming and it's going to be a long, cold, hard winter. So it's it's nice to get as many of those warm glows as, as possible. And yeah, this is hopefully a way that, yeah, it's, it's fairly safe and mm. nice. Yeah. I just try to remember what I've been doing over... I mean, last week I was sick, so there wasn't much uh, exciting things happening apart from me um, just being very low energy, having a headache. Uh, luckily, none of the dangerous symptoms, um, just like a general um, cold something. Um, but yeah, and since then I've been I've been doing like uh, woodworking, what everybody says when, when they're respective careers be it science I, I often hear it from it from people working in it who run into like issues with their job they're just like i'm just gonna stop doing what i'm doing and and start building furniture work with wood wood is nice to me and i thought baking was always a thing for scientists this yeah. Is like yeah if you can follow a protocol like a scientific protocol 
a recipe is basically a protocol. So a, a lot of scientists I knew and like male and female alike were planning to open up a bakery yeah, at some point. Yeah. At plan B. Me, me too. I was also, I had a very strong image in mind of what my bakery would look like and um, what kinds of goods I would bake and so on. Um, but yeah, and then I ended up doing something completely different and not baking anything. Um, but yeah, so I've been just working in my little workshop um, and figuring out tools, which is actually really fun because um, yeah, they, I'm I'm like an avid and and enthusiastic woodworker, but I have so little skills in it. Um, so it's an opportunity to learn so many new things to figure out structures in 3d and so on which um i yeah don't really do in my other day it also life. it seems like an actual practical skill as far as like when the zombies come like woodworking will still be useful i i mean i can i can sort of sew i can use a sewing machine but i don't think that's actually helpful because i feel like when the zombies come there'll be if anything a surplus of clothing due to the sudden lack of people who have now become zombies and, and don't you know change their outfit as regularly as they once used to due to zombification but woodworking will be really good for like building the barricades and um i don't know what other structures we'll need yeah i mean once we contain the zombie apocalypse, we then need to rebuild everything, and then we need clothes just as well as we use chairs and and tables and beds. And I don't, I, I don't know. I just think there's so many like, like clothes we have too many of us in this world, right? Like we've, we're at the point where we could stop making clothes for the next twenty years, and we'd pretty much be fine. Yeah, but I imagine that very quickly, all of the sort of the the normal distribu uh, normal distribution of clothes size, um, sort of the the meaty chunk in the middle will be gone very quickly from all of the um, stores, um, sort of like the the M to L sizes. Um, but I mean, what do you, what do you mean by gone? Like, I mean, gone and put into the people's wardrobes, right? But like, if there's a limitation of how many clothes you can have, or if there's like, if it's regulated, like we are not yeah, lacking I, clothes that are circulating. In fact, we have a surplus. I mean, there's clothes are going to secondhand shops they can't get sold and they're going like into rubbish piles basically yeah yeah i think it depends on how many people actually make it uh, through the apocalypse and where they are 10 yeah but also then like what kind of clothes do you need you probably when once like the heating is out and everything you need uh, uh, more I mean, layers. obviously that's why i plan to go through the apocalypse in germany because germany has good like weathering clothes for like hiking like wandering <laughs> like this kind of yeah yeah none of these flim flimsy australian or british clothes which are i don't know for going to the pub or whatever <laughs> but still i think um it will be useful to be able to sew new clothes or to repair them at least um because i guess there will be uh, did you I hear that friends hire tegan for your apocalypse need <laughs> yes please keep me alive long enough because let's be honest i'm one of the first to go in the apocalypse <laughs> in zombie times favorite plant and it's me this time and today i'm talking about dendronide excelsa which you might have heard about before um we've talked about it briefly on the blog 
last time about around this year because it's one of our scary plants that we included in our Halloween special. Mm. So this guy is an Australian tree. It's a very big Australian singing tree. It's known most commonly by the name Gimpy Gimpy, which is actually coming from uh, the Gubi Gubi language, which is the indigenous language of the area. Um, it's Queensland, which is kind of the the northeastern chunk of Australia, and it's like a very tropical um, sort of habitats up there. So the Gimpy Gimpy tree is this kind of incredible but mostly terrifying tree. Um, it's belonging to the same family as singing nettles, which you find in the north, so in in Northern America and in Europe. But unlike singing metal nettles, which kind of sting you and then you have a little bit of pain for, you know, minutes, maybe hours if you're really unlucky, the gimpy gimpy tree can sting you and give you pain that will last for hours, days, and in some cases even months um, with residual numbness um, being maintained for a long period afterwards. It doesn't it can sound even- like fun. It does not look like fun. It can even sting through clothes and it brings up these huge welts. And it does this because there are kind of these hairs on the the leaves, so like trichomes they're called, but they're sort of silica-tipped syringes that, like, like fiberglass, they gently pierce your skin and then inject their disgusting poison into you. Um, and I'll get back to that in a while. Um, it's extremely painful, as I said. And there's even rumors that just clearing the plants, so trying to cut them down to remove the problem, can result in these tiny fibers becoming airborne, which means that they can just spread even more. Um, oh my god! So when we wrote about this a a year ago, I gave it a scary score of six out of five. So I said this is basically the scariest plant that exists, and I think I might have also apologized to everyone in the past who I always said. Australia only has scary animals. Our plants are lovely. Turns out it's not true. Um, (laughs) This is horrific. Even the plants are out there to get you. Yeah. Um, But I want to talk about it again today, not only because we're back in Halloween month um, and I've been sort of sharing stuff about our different Halloween plants on the Instagram account, but also because there's some new research that came out maybe a month ago about how exactly Gimpy Gimpy causes so much pain. Um, so back when I wrote the article, we, the common knowledge kind of in the scientific field was that there are some neurotoxins, which are kind of held in these, like at the end of these silica. Um, and that includes things like moroidin it's called, but there's a new article, a research article that just came out in, um, science advances on the 16th of September. It's by three, um, first authors, Edward Gilding, Sina Jami and Jennifer Doyas, I hope I said those right. And the article is called Neurotoxic Peptides from the Venom of the Giant Australian Stinging Tree. And I, first of all, I just want to say I would quite recommend that you go and check out this paper um, if you're a scientist, but also if you're just a person who finds science occasionally amusing. Um, I'm going to read a few quotes from this really beautiful writing. So I think one of the first paragraphs is, is uh, sentences within the paragraph is, is, sorry, Australia notoriously harbors some of the world's most venomous animals, but although less well-known, its venomous flora is equally remarkable. Number one. So then it talks about the Gimpy Gimpy, and it says, you know, it belongs to the stinging nettle family, which is um, uh, Urticaceae. And it says, 
these members of the Urticaceae family are far more than oversized nettles. And then it goes on to talk about how in the state where they are found, it's not uncommon to actually find warning signs saying, be careful, this aggressive tree is in the area. Um, and it then goes on to explain how people have like been given intensive care for 36 hours after getting stung by Gimpy Gimpy, how some of these people didn't even respond to morphine, which is pretty much one of the, the most powerful pain medications we've got and had ongoing symptoms lasting months. Um, and then one of the next sentences, however, although um, dendrosnidae, so that's the genus name stings, are common and many Australians, including the authors, vividly <laughs> recall their personal experience with stinging trees. And then it goes on. And this, this is actually quite charming to me because when I did science in school, we were kind of taught not to put ourselves into the science too much. Um, but that can actually sometimes lead to a worse story. Um, and here... The the scientists are a little bit in the paper, not just in that um, one single e example, but later on, I'll see if I can find it. So I think one of the first things in the results section says, contact with the trichome, so these little, um, these little needle hairs, during an accidental sting of a healthy 41-year-old individual resulted in an almost immediate sharp stinging sensation. And then it goes on to describe it. So... My guess is that one of the authors accidentally got stung by the Gimpy Gimpy while they were trying to do the research on the Gimpy Gimpy. I don't have any evidence to back that up, but that's what I'm thinking. It sounds like a really non-fun plant to do research on. Um, from all of the sort of model organisms and wild species that exist, um, I think I would stay the furthest away from the Gimpy Gimpy tree. Um, just this yeah. idea that like you, you, you touch it or stuff breaks off, it becomes airborne, and then you have um, pain for a month or symptoms for a month. This is just, um, yeah, I, I, this is, I would put that in the corner of things that can be left unexplained, and I wouldn't mind. <laughs> it's just the nope corner, the general, yeah. like, we know it exists. There's like the known knowns, the unknown, no, the, the, the known unknowns, the unknown unknowns, and then there's like the known nopes, like, <laughs> yes. just the, like, leave it alone. <laughs> Yeah, just just leave it where it is. Um, although I have one question: um, Do we know why it is so ex extremely aggressive? Um, like, what kind of animal has to be fought off um, with such an extreme measure? I mean, I, I guess it comes at some energetical expense to the tree to be that evil. So why go so extreme on the defense measures? So I'm not sure what exactly it's targeting. So why it's that aggressive as far as wanting to kill a certain animal. Um, I think it might be just a general defense thing to stop itself from getting eaten by herbivores, but I'm not sure like who it's targeting specifically. But I do know why mechanistically, because that was kind of the point of this paper. So as I said previously, they thought there was some um, small neurotoxin molecules. But the, the point of this paper is that they actually sort of... Um, isolated the different substances found within the, the venom of the tree, so this kind of stingy fluid, and they fractionated and they worked out which of these molecules was the ones that was particularly stingy. And I'm not really, I think they used mice to do this, but it, they did mention at some point that one of the fractions gave the same kind of pain response as the stinging. So I wonder if there was also some more like author involvement 
before we got to the mice. But anyway, um, they fractionated the venom and they actually found that what's doing it is these very, very small, basically small proteins. So it's just a cluster of a few peptides, so a couple of amino acids shoved together. And they hadn't ever been described before. Um, it's kind of a completely new thing. So they even got a new name, which is gimpitides. So gimpy peptides, gimpitides. Um, and even though they haven't been described before, when you look at the physical structure, so kind of the 3D way that these, these peptides form a shape, it looks really similar to other venoms, other active ingredients in venoms for, um, for example, some spiders or these, these really aggressive cone snails. Um, so it has this kind of shape that looks like other <coughs> neurotoxins. So mechanistically, how it works is it this peptide toxin basically inserts itself into some channels which keep open certain um, signals going to like um, neurotransmitters and it basically stops them from closing and by stopping them from closing it stops the pain response from being turned off so basically you get pain and then like you open your mouth to scream and this just blocks the scream from ever ending in a <laughs> in a chemical sense so this is this is now the explanation that it just stops you from ever stopping feeling the pain oh <laughs> and I mean, some of some of the old school ways of treating this is to like add hydrochloric acid in the hopes of destroying the pretty much denaturing, destroying all proteins. Then there, right? And, and yeah, I mean, I don't suggest adding hydrochloric acid to ev anything. I don't know if that's a good idea. Um, yeah, but I guess if it means that it then so you sort of burn it out chemically and then it heals and then. It's probably the healing takes less time than months of pain, probably. I think I have to say the month of pain is definitely a rare thing. Like it definitely does burn like holy fire, but it seems like the average case, it's like a couple of hours to a couple of days, not not months. Yeah. Um, but like about the, the who it's defending, apparently several small animals still do eat these leaves. So, I mean, you know, it's an arms race always and Australia has a lot of these weird animals. So like... In some ways, it's still losing the arms race. Maybe that's why it got so poisonous because it just kept on getting getting more and more. Um, and also, the plant even has fruits that are apparently edible to humans if the hairs, like the stinging hairs, are properly removed. So it's mm. also able to be eaten. Which yeah. But anyway, um, that's gimpy gimpy, which I think is just an amazing and terrifying treat to me. The idea of these hairs becoming airborne just. Yeah. frightens the bejeebus out of me like imagine inhaling that stuff <laughs> i don't know if that's even possible or if it's just an urban legend i mean the second thing is this because of this special structure that this this gimpy tides have they're incredibly stable over time and there's even some references to like 100 year old herbarium specimens of gimpy gimpy still being stingy when you touch them which is just it's just mental <laughs> um yeah but do read up about this. It's it's super amazing. We'll put all the links. Um, and I also wanted to say we have a, a blog post up that kind of has a list of our other favorite. I don't think any of them are as scary as Gimpy Gimpy, but we've got some other favorite plants. Um, yeah. And I wanted to thank Sarah on Instagram um, for sharing some Gimpy Gimpy photos with us. And she also showed me some shots of, of what happens when you get stung by them. So thanks mm -hmm. a lot. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't really want to say cool or awesome about this plant because I'm still, I'm afraid that it will become one of these invasive species that just makes its way here and then suddenly we can't get rid of it. And then we just, 
we we wear, wear masks for the pandemic and full full hazard suits because of airborne gimpy gimpy um, trichomes. I don't really think that's. I mean, I think that's okay. an absolutely realistic fear that I have. <laughs> I, I won't hear anything else. I think you should copyright that because it sounds like some some really good like the start of a a computer game or something. <laughs> um, yeah, let's let's talk about something else. So I I am not um, paralyzed by fear. So this week it's my turn to talk about a non-white male uh, researcher of the plant world or adjacent. And uh, I came across uh, Pamela Ronald, um, who was just awarded the World Agricultural Prize 2020. And by being awarded that prize, she's actually the first woman who ever got this prize. Um, what's, what's the World Agricultural Prize? It's a prize that uh, exists for over 20 years. I think it was put into place in 1998. Um, yeah, and that's not 10 years ago. That's 20 years ago by now. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly my thought every time <laughs> I, I think about the 90s, that they're not 10 years away, but 20. In the 80s, they're 30 years away. Um, but anyway, um, this is an international uh, organization that um seeks to like they they hold conferences and they seek to promote um the innovation through technologies in the world of agriculture and just to make in general agriculture more efficient better more accessible to more people um that is sort of their self-description um and yeah and all the prizes in the last um 20 years went to men and um, pamela ronald is the first woman who was awarded it um and she's a researcher um she's still working at the university of davis in california and she's a professor in the genome center and department of plant pathology um so she works a lot with plant microbe interactions so mm -hmm. what happens whenever one of these microorganisms um come near plants and then they either are beneficial or they are detrimental to the plant and what happens there and often we're talking about diseases in this field um, and that's actually what she worked uh, about um, uh, she created um, rice lines um, so so rice varieties that have uh, increased resistances against diseases or against flooding for example um, that's some of the work that she, that's mentioned so has she been sorry she's, she's been working with breeding companies as for that work this is also yeah i think so it's like very she, practical science yeah it's she's sort of at the interface between basic research and applied research mm -hmm. um she she works sort of in both fields to figure out really what's going on on a molecular level and then how to put that in production plants and in plants that we can actually grow in the fields and not just in the labs um yeah and i found this uh, cool interview with her that i would like to recommend to our listeners um it's a couple of years old already, but there she talks about how she came to the plant research field and um, and some some bits more. And what I liked is that she says that uh, her love for plant biology was sparked when she was backpacking through uh, the wilderness in Sierra Nevada, and uh, she met some um, some botanist and they they started to talk. And she, and she says in the interview that it was one of the first times that she realized that this is a career that people can have, like um, mm -hmm. understand and study um, plants and, and plant life. And through that, and she did the plant microbe interactions first um, in sort of model species. And then she turned to, to rice as um, a very important crop uh, and sort of stuck, got stuck with that for, for, um, for a long time. Um, and sort of that also then resulted for this, uh, into this prize for the, um, the, the World Agricultural Prize. 
Uh, and another thing that I quite liked about uh, her reading in the interview is that she's a very avid science communicator. She, um, 10 years before we started our little blog here, she's, um, I think she started it even earlier. What the, this is like your, before the common era of our yeah. blog, there were other, who knew there were other blogs first? Yeah. So, so mm-hmm. uh, 10, 10 before Plants and Pipettes, mm-hmm. um, they, she, she um, had a blog. Uh, first, she published it on, a, uh, on her own. It's called Tomorrow's Table. Then it was part of science blogs. Um, and uh, she also then wrote a book that's called Tomorrow's Table. And it's all about how do we do agriculture in the future? And um, I, I, uh, she says in an interview that uh, why she started this, why she, she, she became also a science communica- communicator on top of being an active researcher, is that she says that uh, she was frustrated with the quality of information available to the public. And um, she said, if scientists could directly communicate with the public, there would be less distortion of science. And that's a feeling that I, um, that I share. Uh, and I think... Um, while I I really cherish dedicated science communicators, uh, I sometimes see um, the misrepresentation of the actual science. So when you really know what's going on in the paper and then you read sort of the the PR version of it, there's sometimes discrepancies in there. And um, one way to deal with that is having is teaching scientists to also talk about their research. And a little bit, it's what we're doing here, right? Like we're both trained scientists, and um, we're trying to to communicate our expertise in a way that we have a little bit less of a distortion. Although I think we might actually distort sometimes some things um, because we're not experts for everything, obviously. Um, but yeah, so I quite like that sentiment. Uh, and then she also she the the whole interview ends with a paragraph where she's asked about her advice for junior scientists, um, and then uh, her statement is of course the love of science always comes first. Just practice communicating, keep reading and listening to other good science communicators. Think about your audience and keep dropping the technical lingo. It takes a lot of time, but there's great science. Uh, there's a great science writing community. After a while, you just get sucked in. Um, and I would also think that's like the advice that I, I would give. It's just like consume, listen to others, figure out what you like, and then just keep doing it. Try to simplify your language every time and yeah, just get bet- better with it with time. And then you'll find a very cool community about it. Um, so yeah, so I quite liked her for, like I, I found her over this agricultural prize, but I quite liked her attitude for science communication. Yeah. Um, and so that's pa- uh, Pamela Ronald. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, 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 And it's me. Um, the bias I want to talk about today is the Ben Franklin effect. Have we talked about this before, Yoram? No. I think I might have brought it up in other contexts because I was aware of this idea actually from uh, the Don Draper show. What's that actually called in real life? Mad Men. Mad Men. From the show Mad Men. So the, the Ben Franklin effect is the idea that somebody is more likely to do a favor for you, not if you've done a favor for them, but if they've already done a favor for you, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So if you ask me to help you with like your some German document and I've done it once, 
I will be likely to do it again later. And sooner than you know it, you are just my German document person who I always come to and, and never then, get anything in return. And then news travels uh, in the lab and suddenly all non-German speakers um, come with their German letters to you and or to me in this case. And suddenly I'm the secretary, like the unofficial secretary for rental contracts, bank stuff and telecommunication companies. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's that's correct, and that's how it should be, I think. And that's the Ben Franklin effect. Yeah, that's basically it. Um, so I think it's it's a pretty straightforward idea, and the the background, the reason that they think it might work, is that basically our brains are stupid, which is kind of the point of all of the cognitive biases that we talk about. Um, and if we do a favor for somebody, even if we do the favor for them out of politeness or because we feel we should, whatever our brain tells us, like, it has to justify that we did that thing. So instead of, like, telling us that we were a sucker, basically, our brain says, oh, you, you must like that person. You did that, that favor. You must mm -hmm. have an affinity to them or they must be, you know, a person worthy of doing favors for. So your brain somehow justifies why you did the favor and that then builds up a positive rapport, which makes you more likely to do the favor a second time. Uh -huh. Um yeah, and so there's there's been some kind of different uses of this throughout the field. So it can be used, for example, in, in sales where um, it's like a company or a salesperson might ask potential clients to help them to, you know, improve products or to ask what their opinion is on something and, you know, ask them, oh, may I please have the, the favor of your time? And by in, in actually you know, using up the time or using the resources of somebody, they then put have this feedback, this Ben Franklin effect feedback where they, they think more favorably about the product or about the store or whatever it is. Do they have to be equal, equally taxing favors? Like, could I ask somebody for the favor of bringing me a coffee and then they did me that favor and I'd say, oh, actually, can you help me move all my stuff across Europe uh, in your private car? And then because they gave me the coffee, they were like, I must like that person. Maybe I can drive all of his stuff to Spain in my Renault Clio. I mean, I think you know the answer to this. It's not like a catch-all for like, that thanks, you you like lit my cigarette one time, now can I have a kidney? Like, I don't think it quite <laughs> It's a life hack that works in like excess. that. Yeah. Um, it's very much like The Secret, but instead of The Secret, it's called The Asking and TM, Tegan and Yoram, please will take 5% of everything. Um, no, I think it's it's just a kind of natural phenomenon as opposed to something insanely incredible there are, are some limitations so they did a study um it's jecker and land landy in 1969 in which students took part in a q a and then based on the q a they could actually win some money but then after the 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 competition was over the students got asked for the money back so the money they'd won they were asked if it could be given back to the person they'd won it from And in the negative control, they weren't asked for the money back. So that's negative control. Um, one third of the students were asked back by the researcher who would who would run the experiment and let them the, win the money. And then in the, the third group, the person who asked to return the money was like a secretary, was kind of another person. And they found that this Ben Franklin thing of being happy to be asked a favor only worked if it directly came from from the person involved so by including the secretary so having this intermediary the the ben franklin effect couldn't be um mm -hmm. sort of 
activated. So the the group who didn't like who didn't have the money asked for them had the kind of neutral response. The people who had it asked by the researcher actually liked the researcher more. When they asked at the end, how great is this researcher? They were like, oh yeah, I really like this person. And the ones who had the intermediate liked them than less um, than the control, negative control group. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Why is Sorry. it called Ben Franklin? That's exactly where I wanted to end. Um, so the idea is that um, Ben Franklin had the effect named after him. Because at one stage, he made a statement in his autobiography about this effect, but it's based on his own issues with a rival. Um, And at one point, he wrote to this rival asking, like, expressing curiosity curiosity about a very um, scarce book that the rival happened to have. So he just wrote to this guy and was like, would you please do me the favor of lending me the book for a few days? And he said that, this person sent it to him, but then after that incident, suddenly this person was greeting him in the hallway and like saying hello and say offering to help in the future. And this is a person who had previously been a rival and previously had never spoken to him. And this is quite interesting because this is where this Ben Franklin effect comes from. But to me, it's also a really important thing about science and science communication, which is basically we all have stupid niche hobbies and we just are desperate for somebody to express an interest in them. And for any of you who are thinking of getting into science communication or also are want to ask professors about something that you need to know, keep this in mind that like, A lot of us like sharing our expertise and like having other people express interest in our bizarre niche hobbies, be it an obscure, scarce book or be it, I don't know, plant chloroplasts and how they they develop from a tireplast. So I think that the original cause of the Ben Franklin effect is actually like the nerd niche effect, which is that we... We just want to share our loves and passions with the world. So that's my new theory. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to have that that also as a bias, the nerd niche effect, as a way to yeah. explain how to extort um, detailed information from people who actually trained really hard to get that information and give it away for free if you just um, show some interest. Just ask them nicely. I mean, because we, yeah, we want to, sh- we want to show that we're experts, and we also we are happy that you're interested in our stuff, right? This is yeah, and it gives approaching us approaching people is the best way to do things, and it makes us believe that it wasn't useless what we trained for for like several mm. years, and that actually somebody, some people do care, even though we tend to emphasize that oh, nobody cares about that specific protein, and so as soon as somebody proves us wrong, there we get really excited. I mean, like calling them at night and be like, hey, I found something new in my Western blood. Do you yeah, want to I know? Mean, Do you want to know? <laughs> next week, we, if you tune in, we'll describe how to make the nerd niche effect then end, like how to <laughs> shut up the nerd. Like, I mean, <laughs> I've also written to Yoram asking him for advice on cameras and then got like 500 page essays about <laughs> the pros and cons of... Yeah, and yeah. to this day, like every other day, I'm sending Tegan detailed messages on cameras and... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I've actually made an entire segment of our podcast about crows and or zombies. And that's just how it's going to remain because Yoram doesn't know how to make me stop. Yes, please. I also want to hear about the, the nerd <laughs> stop effect. Yeah. <laughs> how to shut we'll up, come up We'll come up with some better marketing for next episode, maybe. Yeah, that's um, the Brendan Franklin effect. The idea that people are more likely to do a favor for you. Not if you've done a favor for them, but if they've already done another favor for you. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins.
Um, it's happening, guys. The time is now. Pink pineapples are upon us. That's my news. <laughs> Finally, um, the thing that I never knew I wanted. Pink pineapples. And I'm still not sure I do. Um, so this is an announcement that came out at uh, the start of this month that Del Monte, which is a big corporation, I assume, has launched a new genetically modified pineapple, which has pink flesh. It's mm -hmm. also supposed to taste a little bit sweeter and apparently have a kind of candy flavor, which to me sounds absolutely disgusting. Like, <laughs> yes. I don't really need my food to be pink in the first place, but if it is, I, I definitely don't need it to taste like candy. I mean, how, um, how else do you make your pizzas to taste like candy? That's true. <laughs> that's a very good. Usually I just sprinkle some M&Ms on top of them. I, I use candy corn, candy corn pizza with like tomato sauce and, and mozzarella. Um, so <laughs> this pink fleshed pineapple, it does in fact have kind of a pale, lightly salmoned pink um, skin. It's called Pink Glow, and I would strongly encourage you to go to the pinkglowpineapple.com website just to check out what's happening there. It's a product that's apparently been developed for quite a lot of years and now has this kind of bizarre retro-style campaign, I would say. It looks very... I don't know. Is that 50s? It might be 80s when like everybody was into aspic and... Um, <laughs> I think it was even earlier. It was, but I don't even know. To me, that's seventies. To me, it it reads seventies, but I have no idea. I recently read somewhere that we are grossly misattributing the decades to the feelings that we have. Yeah, I I I, I listened to a podcast about the mullet and how <laughs> we think of the mullet as an eighties thing when um, it sort of came late eighties and was much more present in the nineties. But um, because we often describe the things that we think belong to the 80s, are actually the things that happened roughly between 85 and 95. So half of it was technically in the 90s, but we feel like it's still 80s. Same as I feel still it's the 90s when I think about stuff from the early 2000s. Um, this is to me the 90s. Um, I want to just point out that the the podcast you're I'm listening to is called Decoder, and it's really great. It has different episodes yeah. about all a, a huge range of things, including the mullet, um, but also about Karens and about I mean just every topic, and it's it's really nicely done. Very well produced, really cool storytelling, um, really enjoyable. But yeah, back to the pink pineapple. What? Why? <laughs> I'm not really sure why. I'm also not really sure how. So I'm. We can see that it's GM because it has to have like FDA approval. Um, it's not going to be grown in the US, but it needed to get sort of approval to be exported into the US and eaten in the US. Um, but it says on the website of the pinkglowpineapple.com. Pink glow trademark. Like. Yes, that pink glow PM pineapples contain lycopene. So this is a carotenoid. So it's a colored pigment that mm -hmm. gives red color. It's the thing that you find in tomatoes. Um but it doesn't really say what's been manipulated, genetically speaking, to make this lycopene like shine so brightly, why the pineapple is actually pink. And in fact, there's not really any mention of GM on the website, which I assume is deliberate. The other interesting thing about the pineapple is that it does cost $50, which is quite a lot for a pineapple. Per pineapple. Per, per pineapple. Oh my God. But I think you're missing the fact that it's per pink pineapple. Yeah, like still. how much would you pay for a pink pineapple or a candy flavored pink pi i would probably pay like 150 
two euros maybe cheap yarm cheap i mean i have no idea what an actual regular pineapple costs because i pineapple is not my my um fruit of choice but uh yeah um the other thing is is <laughs> when they send you the pineapple in its special little individually wrapped box they don't send it with the crown so the spiky bit at the top of the pineapple and on the website it says why why do you not send the crown it's one of the frequently asked questions and it says Uh, pink low TM pineapples are harvested by hand. In order to regenerate new pineapple crops, the crown needs to be planted. This does not seem to be true to me. It seems that they don't want other people to grow pink pineapples and thus they have the corner of the market of pink pineapples and that's why they're not going to give you the crown. Um, yeah. Which is also fair. They've taken many years to develop this and it's probably, it's presumably regulated. It's not supposed to be grown um, because it is a GM that hasn't been tested yet. But I like this kind of marketing spin that it's all about sustainable agriculture and that's where they get to keep like arguably the bit about the pineapple that most makes it a pineapple. <laughs> yeah. My suggestion I... is get a normal pineapple for 150 and then chop the head off that one and put it on top of your pink pineapple so it doesn't kind of look naked when you share it at your fancy dinner party. Yeah, or just maybe don't don't buy a $50 pineapple. I mean I'm all in favor of like plant engineering and so on, but I mean, this is this is peak capitalism, right? This is just like look, it doesn't Garm, make a look. better plant. It's 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 a pink plant. It's purely aesthetic, and it's so it's so expensive to make that you can't sell it for like a regular price. You have to sell it as a, like a luxury good. It also means that it's. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I just I just don't get the point. And the more I read about it, the more I'm like, stop wasting resources on this. Like, stop individually wrapping pineapples, sending them across the country for 50 euros or 50 dollars um, without a crown so people can't replant them so it's less sustainable. Like, just stop, please. <laughs> you know what, Yaram? You chose to have children. Other people are spending their hard-earned money on pink pineapples and that's their life's choice. Yeah. Your arm is just shaking his head. <laughs> All right. I think we need a different fun fact so you don't go into pink pineapple rage. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of those things, like, the more I know, um, the, the the angrier and <laughs> getting less understanding I have for it. So, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about molecular biology and not the kind that's done by major companies to get your hard-earned cash, but instead um, something to help us understand. That was very judgmental. I am very judgmental. That was on purpose. <laughs> That's not the tone of our show, Yoram. You're um, friendly. Most of Likeable. the time, unless we're talking about pink pineapples. Um, uh, Rubisco, you might have heard of it. It's uh, a thing that we talk about from time to time. Um, it's this very important enzyme complex or uh, like a large structure made of um, multiple proteins Uh, that does the carbon fixing, that takes the carbon dioxide from the air and puts it into organically bound carbon uh, molecules that will then end up being sugar. And um, all plants have it. It's very important. It's the most abundant protein on earth because you find it in every leaf um, of every plant 
with exceptions, of course, like always in biology. Um, but this enzyme is very important and also its regulation is very important um, because we talked about it already a couple of times, I think, by now about this photorespiration effect. So it can sort of do the wrong reaction and then that's costly to the cell. So there, there are times when you want to shut down the enzyme or reduce its activity. And um, that's done by the, the, the plant cell um, by putting um, sort of a type of sugar in the center of its reaction center uh, that blocks the enzyme. And then there is another part that's called Rubisco activase, um, uh, um, another protein that comes in there and reactivates Rubisco. And for a long time, um, we didn't know how that works. Um, so you have to imagine it's sort of like a barrel-shaped thing. It has like an active center. And there's this, this sugar sitting in there and then Rubisco can't do its thing. Um, uh, and then Rubisco activase comes and comes in there. And now researchers um, that looked at Rubisco activase in cyanobacteria that have a, where the, this Rubisco activase works very similar to, to the way it works in plants. And they figured out that it's sort of a, a pushing and pulling of the Rubisco activase. It sort of stretches the corners of the activation side of the of the um, active center of direction side of this enzyme sort of pushes and pulls and then the sugar molecule pops out and rubisco is activated um, it just squeezes it it sort of it squeezes it but it also pulls uh like it pulls and pushes it pulls the end terminus sort of of that's like one end of one of the protein chains it pulls that into the reaction center and pushes the c terminus of another protein end out of the reaction center it's sort of this is like pushing pulling thing and that pops out the thing and i just imagine like it's pressing sort of when you have something stuck in like a silicon mold or something and just like push it from the bottom and it's like plop and the thing goes out and i think that's the way it works now with rubisco and rubisco activase um do they have a video of this no i just found um i just found like their graphical abstract where they have just a still image showing how Rubisco activase sits on top of this um, active reaction center. Um, and then they have like a little graphic showing how like one protein's end is pulled and the other end is pushed um, to release the inhibitory, sort of the blocking sugar molecule in there. Uh, and then there, this Rubisco activase has also another function of sort of keeping the rubiscos together in um, in the cyanobacteria because they have like a special structure where they all sit so it also has a dual function but i really like this this visual image of like pulling and stretching um the edge of this 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 enzyme complex to remove um an inhibitory molecule because very often like in the graphics and the descriptions it's just like these things they come together then something happens and they go apart again and I like the idea that they're actually like, yeah, bending and stretching and exerting some sort of force to. Um, Does to it make do you job. also like feel like they're like working a little bit harder? They're actually doing a job yeah. as opposed to just kind of. I have more, more respect for them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, no, more more like when I when I think of molecules and enzymes, a lot of the time I just think of things kind of blindly stumbling around a cell and kind of like hitting each other randomly, and then yeah. sometimes something happens. Like it seems very all very arbitrary to me. Yeah, and then it's just like a matter of concentrations, how likely some reactions are and others aren't. And um, yeah, this this sort of is, sounds a little bit less random bumping together and more purposeful activity, like purposeful manipulation of one another. Um, so yeah, so the paper is called Dual Functions of a Rubisco Activase in Metabolic Repair and Recruitment to Carboxysomes from uh, Mirko Flecken et al., 
and um, yeah, it's it's published in Cell. Uh, I don't think it is open access though, but you can see the graphical abstract um, of the story behind the link that we put in the show notes. Um, I also have something that's come from a paper that I've just heard um, about recently, although the paper came out in August 2020, it was published in Nature, and it's called A Prion-like Domain in ELF3 Functions as a Thermosensor in Arabidopsis. Anyway, I found this really cool because I don't really understand very much about how plants can actually sense temperature. So we know that mm-hmm. plants can respond to temperature. They they can choose when to grow when it's warm enough. I and mean, this is one of the kind of clear things that happens when spring comes about in, in cold countries. But like getting my head around understanding how that actually happens at the kind of molecular level, what what are the the thermometers inside the cell that's then making action? It's a bit vague to me. Mm-hmm. And this is um, a really cool direct example. So they found that there's a certain protein, it's called L4, and it's involved in some of these kind of flowering, flowering responses. So something that's really necessarily, it's necessary for the plant to do at the right temperature. And they found, sorry, L3 is, is the protein, not L4. They found that L3 has a ability to respond to temperature by basically changing its state and forming liquid droplets. So when mm-hmm. it gets too hot, it basically kind of like bloop and like globs up into little droplets um, instead of being freely diffusing around the cell. So as we just said, if it's in these droplets, it's not bumping into other things, which means it's actually not doing its job. And they found that this happens when the temperature increases. And more than just finding that it forms these droplets, they also found how this formation happens. So so what's causing it to happen? Mm-hmm. And the ELF3 basically has a domain, so part of the, the protein, which is a prion-like domain. And you might have heard about prions before. They're yeah. these kind of disordered protein things that like protein-like things, which are we're kind of terrified of, of them because the idea is that they, they, they run around being disordered and when they bump into other things, they can also cause disorder in other things. And they're the cause, for example, of mad cow disease, right? Yeah. There was like in, in the 90s, um, this very big, scary story where we suddenly had this this disease in cows that could be transferred to humans just by eating the meat, just by ingesting the proteins and then if these proteins would get to the brain in a human, they would then start to deorganize the pr- some proteins in the brain and that would then lead to this disease, um, to this like neurodegenerative disease. And yeah, I always find them, found them and still find them very terrifying, this idea that they are, yeah, they're just touching things and spreading their own disorder and that breaks stuff. So I think in this context, it's less terrifying, but you do, you can hold on to the concept that disorder is involved. So basically, these prion-like domains have a kind of different structure that means that when they get sort of triggered, they go into this more disordered state. And that seems to be the trigger. And I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying a bit here, but that's sort of making this otherwise nicely ordered protein pop out of order. Um, and then turn into these droplets and then stop doing its job. And I mean, once it stops doing its jobs, you get all these downstream effects where the plant is now responding mm. to temperature changes, which I think is it's really, really simple and really, really amazing. Um, do we know or do they say something about whether or not we there are several of these for sort of different temperatures? Because I can imagine they sort of have one 
temperature range where they go from one state to the other. Um, so you can sense that temperature transition. I don't know, from 25 to 27. But you might also want to know from 4 to 6 and, I don't know, 10 to 15 degrees. So this was looking at a specific um, protein, ELF4, and so it could be possible that there's different, these domains which have different temperature sensitivity in different proteins. But in this case, what seems to be helping is that there's another protein that interacts with it. Sorry, ELF3 and ELF4. So ELF3 represent, um, interacts with another protein called ELF4, and ELF4 seems to modulate the temperature sensitivity of ELF3. So how much ELF4 there also can help how likely ELF3 is to do this kind of bloop thing and mm -hmm. respond to the temperature. So that sounds like a fine-tuning mechanism, mm -hmm. right? If you yeah. add more of this kind of stabilizing protein, um, suddenly it's not blooping. Um, and on the other hand, they also found that the responsive protein is different in um, different plants. So let me just see. The, the ELF3 protein in plants from hotter prime climates, so where it's always hot, they actually don't have this prion-like domain, so they can stay active even at high temperatures, um, and they don't have this kind of thermal responsiveness. So mm -hmm. there is also some sort of over-evolutionary time adaptation that's happened here depending on the environment that the plant is living in. Mm -hmm. cool. cool, huh? Yeah, really, really cool. Um yeah, I, I like to, uh, that it's one of these, like the, the sensing of physical things um, on a molecular biochemical level is something I find fascinating. It's it so weird, right? Like, it's just like... It reminds me of this gravity thing that you that there is actually like dense starch granules in the cell, in the root tips that then sort of sink down and then they sense that they are sitting on one end of the cell and not on the other end. And so the cell knows where up and down is so it can grow down into the soil and that doesn't just like randomly poke out of the out of the ground. Um, and it's also like this physical mechanism of having something sink down in re response to physical orientation. Um, yeah, really... Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always really fascinated by this. So my next fact is that um, nature really wants to make crabs. And by that, I don't Wait. mean nature, the publishing house. Although I, I can't really say, I can't say that they don't want to really make crabs. Nobody can say. The, I, it could very well be that this is their prime directive, that they eventually want to make a lot of crabs. Abuser all or our own. <laughs> Just important <laughs> to mention that here. But we can neither confirm or deny anything. It's just it's just scientifically we don't we can't run the experiment and it's really hard to prove the absence of something, right? It's an so. unknown unknown, but also an <laughs> unknown nope. <laughs> um, Sorry, carry on, tell the crab fact. So I want to talk about um crabification or more properly uh carcinization um from the Greek, Latin, ancient word um that's also related to cancer. Um, and cancer stands for crab. Um, and it's the fact that uh, in during the evolutionary history, multiple times crustaceans evolved into crab shapes, um, sort of into like a crab body with crab legs and crab pincers, um, even though they ca came from something else. So it seems to be a very successful niche, and it's... Um, uh, it's just a sign for convergent evolution. So the idea that 
when you have multiple different species living in a similar habitat, um, the best solution for that habitat might be, in this case, the crab. So over time, they evolve um, into crab shapes because that works best. It's a hard shell. They have like their pincers to pince people and like scary little legs. And that's very important. Um, <laughs> the scary little legs. <laughs> that's the most important thing, the scary little legs. <laughs> Um, and so there's like king crabs um, that evolved from hermit crabs and there's actually an interesting story behind that because hermit crabs if you imagine there are these crabs that live in these shells and these shells they have a rotation to them um, that's not symmetrical and so also the body of the hermit crab is asymmetrical um, and then king crabs that sort of are downstream evolutionary so first there were hermit crabs and then they evolved into king crabs um, and the hermit crabs don't look like like what we could called true crabs but the king crabs do um, um the king crabs still have this asymmetrical morphology in their body um they are still like um yeah not symmetrical as other true crabs are and that's sort of a sign for their evolutionary history and then there's porcelain crabs and the hairy stone crab and the coconut crab and then there's also true crabs that all evolved from something that's not a crab into a crab although they are very distantly related um, to to one another they're all just um decapod crustaceans so 10 foot 10 foot tall crustaceans no not tall. <laughs> um, they have 10 limbs uh 10 limbs um although on the picture i can just count eight but maybe there's like two hidden limbs somewhere that i don't are the claws two of the limbs each claw is two limbs maybe no you're i mean it has six legs and two arms that's eight limbs but it says a decapod crustacean. Anyway, if anybody else knows how to count crustacean limbs better than Yara, please do get in touch with us. But anyway, that's that's um, that's crabification. That's the fact that in nature everything, uh, so five things turned into crabs. Um, <laughs> and uh, but we don't know everything. What... Ultimately, possibly that's the end of human evolution as well. We we can't say for sure, right? Right? In in a couple thousand years, um, we could all evolve into like scary long legs and um, a hard shell. Uh, with little pincers and then we just like walk sideways sideways and we like with our pincers i can strongly recommend pretending to be a crab if you're ever feeling sad lonely or like angry like it, <laughs> it's there's your nothing... main coping strategy to be it's a patient <laughs> <laughs> so many times i saw you coming out of our boss's office like sideways <laughs> with your pincers <laughs> up in the air um just to cope <laughs> <laughs> my pincers were already up <laughs> before i left the office um, and if you have a curious mind like me, you might have also spent the last five minutes looking at photos of naked hermit crabs, which is another terrifying thing that exists <laughs> in this world. <laughs> like, what's going on with that? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crab shape is just ob objectively better than hermit crab shape. Yeah. I mean, like, if I was a, a naked hermit crab, I would rapidly try to evolve into an actual crab actively evolve that's that, that's how it works right <laughs> very lamarckian of me isn't it like, i'm going for it get that hard shell um i want to mention something very quickly before we move on to our cat fact um and that's something that i saw from at sylvia duckworth um but then it was also passed around Twitter and a few different um, accounts. I'll put the link into the show notes. But it's basically just a wheel of power slash privilege. Um, and it's, it's quite simplified. 
So, I mean, it's it's very simplified. It just has like some, you know, three different levels of um, power within different societies. So if you're thinking about, for example, um, citizenship as one of the possible ways in which you can be powered. If you're a citizen of a country, you have more power than somebody who is a documented immigrant into that country. And if you're an undocumented immigrant, you have even less power than those two groups and you are likely to be marginalized, more likely to be. So it goes through all of the different um, things. So there's citizenship, also skin color, education level, ability, sexuality, neurodiversity, mental health, body size, housing, wealth, language and gender and as I said it is quite simplified because it just has kind of three different levels so with sexuality it has heterosexual in the in the power central position then gay men and then it kind of puts lesbian bi pan asexual all in the kind of marginalized side there and I mean you could argue that there's actually more subtle like power structures that exist within those communities but I think the point of it is just to kind of remind ourselves that when we talk about privilege, we're not just talking about, you know, being white or not or um, being rich or not. There's a whole lot of different ways in which you can be privileged. And if you think maybe you are privileged or if anybody's ever told you to check your privilege and you've been a little bit annoyed by them saying that, maybe go and look at the wheel and just notice if maybe all of your things that you have are in the center of that that power wheel. So for me personally, like, Every single thing, basically, except the fact that I'm a woman, not a man, is in the center, which is really showing me just, you know, I am very privileged in the current society that I exist in. Yeah, yeah, same for me. It's like very much bullseye with like very few exceptions where I'm sort of on the middle circle, which is still um, not marginalized. It's still sort of not exactly fully powerful privilege, but still some sort of privilege. Um and again, it's it's really is a simplified overview, but it's just kind of a thing to to remember that this like people talking about privilege, they're not just talking about one issue ever. There's always multiple issues that interact, and even yeah. if you're focusing on people who might be marginalized in some senses, you need to be aware that there's there's kind of different communities who are also struggling in different ways because of this yeah. very much bullshit power structures that we have right now. No. No. Cat fact. So my cat fact is just the fact that the Natural History Museum of the UK recently had a a show of the Wildlife Photographer of the Year. And it has all different categories, but the category that I want you to all go and look at, again, I'm sorry, it's a visual thing on an audio medium, but... That seems like your problem, not my problem. Please go and look at these pictures because it's the picture of um, playful palace cats. So there's like kittens from this type of cat that's called a palace cat. I'm just going to send um, Yoram the link now so he can give all the oars over the audio. So at least you guys watching at home, listening at home, get something from this experience. It's a really weird kind of ASMR. Ready, Yoram? Oh cute they are they look very regal because they have sort of the the eyes are not f wide open they have sort of like this this hanging upper eyelid this is more like this posh of like looking down they look like posh I mean, yeah cats look down on humans that's pretty obvious but they are sort of it's their characteristic of, of the breed is that they look at you like you're just 
like a servant to them. Yeah, so um, anyway, I encourage you to go and look at these photos just because it's ridiculous. What I found quite amusing is that the the artist, the photographer, spent six years watching palace cats before they were able to capture this picture. And I just thought that I spent five years doing my PhD and all I got was a doctor title. So getting this amazing, adorable picture definitely seems like... I mean, imagine getting to spend six years of your time watching these little cute things. So nice. Um, anyway, a palace cat, it's basically a small wild cat that lives in the grasslands and the mountain areas of Central Asia. It's basically very small and stocky, and then it's also very, very fluffy. So it just kind of looks... I mean, the description on Wikipedia is actually stout and plush, which I think is is um, quite beautiful. And I also am going to link a video <laughs> in the show notes, which I would strongly encourage you to watch of a palace cat attacking a video camera. So if you have been having a bit of a tough week this time around, guys, please go and watch that on repeat. I want to have one of these cats now. I mean, there's probably not that many in nature. Now um, they're fine, least concern. It's fine. Ah, okay, cool. Then I'll. Apparently, uh, there was some concern about them getting hunted, but actually, they're okay. I'm <laughs> watching the video. See, if Yoram can giggle that much from the video, so can you. <laughs> oh my god, it is the best. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of um of my my wildlife camera that I have in my garden for the citizen science project and um. I have like my own cats, but also sort of neighbor cats. They come and sit in front of the cameras and often they just like sit there for half an hour, slightly moving their head. So it triggers new pictures of the camera every minute or so, so that I then have to sort through manually to like weed out all of the cat photos. Um, but sometimes they just like come really close to the camera and sort of take selfies there, um, which is then fun again for me to go through it. Like after I watched like a cat butt, um, for like 20 or 30 pictures then suddenly I have a cat face very up close to the camera much like the palace cat in the video that we link okay I think that's it for today so guys um, if you want to follow us on all of the social medias you can find Yarm on Twitter that's at Plants Pipettes you can find me on Instagram and Facebook that's at Plants and Pipettes we have a blog, um, a website that's at plantsandpipettes.com where we publish stories. Um, this week I wrote about, um, now I forgot it. No, I, I wrote about witch weed. Which weed. <laughs> and which weed you might ask that I wrote about and the answer is witch weed. Um, and it's... Keep that in. <laughs> that's horrible, but I think you should keep that in because the listeners have to know. That's uh, who I he no is. I, I've been friends with him for, what, seven years and it doesn't stop. <laughs> um, so, yeah, witch weed is um, a, a pest uh, of sorghum and uh, has an actually a very interesting way it interacts with sorghum. And that's what uh, I wrote about this week on, on the blog. And then we're also doing some uh, Halloween stuff, right? Yeah, Halloween is happening. So we've got a list of our scary plants if you have any plants that you think are particularly terrifying either for them being just 
really dangerous or poisonous like the Gimpy Gimpy or also because they have cool kind of myths behind their origins, please let us know and we'll think about also writing something about those. And then we also have a list of kind of spooky gene names that have come from various plants. So you can check those out as well. Yeah. And then we're always happy to hear your thoughts and comments and input. So you can leave comments. I hope the comment form is working again. I, I, I fixed that a few weeks ago. Um, so yeah, leave us comments or yeah, write to us on social media and, and tell us what you like, what you didn't like. Uh, and if you have any cool plant stories that you want to learn more about. And that's all. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Exactly. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye.